Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Sundays. So I had someone write to me this week and say, will you all be open on Christmas Day? (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, we didn't even close for COVID. We're not going to close for Christmas Day. New Year's Day, I will be standing right here, God willing, and I live right here. 
Anybody else who'd like to join me, we will find out who the people are that are the real partiers in this congregation. Sunglasses. That's right. <laughs> We're not going to stop. We're just going to keep going. But I think we are going to continue a tradition that we have had here at GCA for the last several years. Usually on the last Sunday of the year, we take that last Sunday and I let you all talk. And we just share with each other what the last year was like. How God got us through it, the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows. So we're going to do that on New Year's Day, which means not only will we be able to look back on the last year and think about God's faithfulness to us throughout the year, but it seems like a really good way to start a new year to look forward to what God is going to do in caring for us and sustaining us the same way he has through the year we just got through. So this is fair warning. Be prepared. Come January 1st, be prepared to come and share something with the whole congregation. In years past when we have done that, it's been really good, really fruitful. We've all kind of come away with a better understanding of the difficulties that we all go through and who we all are, and it's a good time of fellowship and a good time of sharing. We are in Revelation chapter 19. Don't turn there. Start in Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel chapter 39, we're just going to read a piece of it starting at verse 17 to introduce you to the idea of God making supper for birds. Chapter 39 of the book of Ezekiel is a prophecy against Gog and Magog, and we'll come back and discuss all that when we hit Gog and Magog coming up in Revelation 20. But at the moment, I just want to start reading from verse 17 because the end result of this battle that God is talking about is that for seven months, says verse 12, the house of Israel is going to be burying bones in order to cleanse the land. So if you understand that context, you'll understand the prophecy that starts in verse 17. Ezekiel is told, And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, Speak to every kind of bird and every beast of the field, and say, assemble and come together, gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I am going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. Okay, so pay attention to the details. First off, it's going to take place on the mountain of Israel. Secondly, it's going to be such a great slaughter that there's going to be seven months of just cleaning up the ground from all the scattered bones. And then God is going to get rid of the meat that is remaining by bringing in every kind of bird and every kind of beast of the field. And then he calls it a sacrifice that he himself has sacrificed for the birds. In the Bible, most of the time that we read about sacrifice, it is human beings sacrificing animals to the glory of God. Here is God saying that for his own glory, he is going to make a sacrifice of human beings and he's going to sacrifice them for the good of the animals and the birds so that they can feast. In the book of Revelation, we're going to find that they feast on captains and kings, powerful, rich men are all going to become bird food. But now I'm going to keep reading in Ezekiel 39 because you're going to see the future element of this prophecy, because it's also going to include a very, very consistent element that all of the prophets of the Old Testament all talk about, which is the eventual regathering of Israel back into their land. That coincides with God making a sacrifice for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the field. Verse 18 says, you shall eat the flesh of mighty men. 
and you will drink the blood of the princes of the earth as though they were rams and lambs and goats and bulls. So as if they were the kind of sacrifices that human beings make to God himself and to their various gods, the animals that were most sacrificed were rams and lambs, goats and bulls. And yet God says, mighty men, princes of the earth, are going to be treated as rams and lambs and goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are glutted, and you will drink blood until you are drunk from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. And you will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men, and all the men of war, declares the Lord God. And I shall set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. And the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles, will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me, and I hid my face from them. So I gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and all of them fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I dealt with them, and I hid my face from them. Therefore... Thus says the Lord God, now I shall restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. That's collectively all 12 tribes. And I shall be jealous for my own holy name. And they shall forget their disgrace and all their treachery that they perpetrated against me. When they live securely on their own land, with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and I gather them from the lands of their enemies and then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am Yahweh, their God, because I made them go into exile among the nations And then I gathered them again to their own land, and I will leave none of them there any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. Has that happened? No. No, none of that has happened. A war, a sacrifice made on the hills of Jerusalem, For the animals and the birds, that hasn't happened yet. God restoring Israel, collecting all 12 tribes and pouring out his spirit on them, which is a prophecy that even Zechariah predicts, that God is going to pour out the spirit of supplication on them so that they will see Christ return and weep over him as a mother weeps over her only child. I keep saying all the prophets of the Old Testament talk about this. They all say that God, who scattered Israel, is also going to gather Israel. God says, I'm the one that wounded you, and I'm the one that's going to heal you. Before we're done this morning, we're going to see Isaiah also say the same thing Ezekiel says here. God says, I scattered you. I know where you are. I'm going to come and get you. Okay, so what is the sign that has to take place before the regathering of Israel? Well, it's this supper for the birds, this sacrifice that God makes for the birds. Okay, with that idea, turn to the book of Matthew. Because now we're going to hear Jesus talk about it. Matthew 24, one of the most eschatological passages of the Gospels. Matthew 24, we're just going to look at verses 27 and 28 because this verse has caused no end of confusion. Matthew 24, 27. If therefore they say to you, this is Christ talking about his return, 
warning them that false Christs and false prophets are going to arise. They're even going to show signs and wonders to mislead, if it were possible, the very elect. And if, therefore, they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go looking for me. Or if they say, behold, he's hiding, he's in an inner room, do not believe them. For here's what his coming is going to be like. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, Jesus says, when I return and the sun and the moon and the stars don't shine their light, there's going to be this great light in the sky, which is the sign of the return of the Son of Man, and it's going to be so expansive, it's going to be like lightning that flashes from that end of the sky all the way to that end of the sky. In other words, everybody's going to see it. I'm not going to be in the wilderness. I'm not going to be hiding in a closet somewhere. I'm not going to be hidden from view. When I come back, everybody's going to know it. And then, verse 28, Matthew has Jesus saying, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Wait, what? (laughs) A minute ago, you were talking about your return. And from everything we've been reading in the book of Revelation, we know that he's coming back with this two-edged sword out of his mouth, with this rod of iron with which he's going to smash the nations and set up his kingdom. And yet in the midst of that, according to Ezekiel, there's going to be this feast made, this sacrifice for the birds, and Jesus makes a passing reference to it here in talking about his return And that he's going to come back where every eye is going to see him. Everyone is going to behold him. And in the midst of that, there are going to be corpses. And wherever the corpses are, there's going to be birds of prey. There's going to be carrion birds who are there to eat the flesh. Turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke 17, we're going to start reading at verse 32. Luke 17, it's hard to start at verse 32. Anyway, remember Lot's wife. Do you remember what Lot's wife did? She was told, don't look back on the judgment of God. Don't look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. She looked back. She was instantly judged. So this is God talking. This is Jesus talking about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, about God pouring out his wrath for sin. And in that context, starting in verse 33, whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life shall preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding in the same place. And one will be taken and the other will be left. Verse 36, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And up until then, it sounds like I'm preaching the left behind book. Because this is a key text for folks who want to find any evidence of the rapture that they can find. They'll go right to Luke here and say, look, Jesus talked about two men in a bed, two men in the field, two women grinding at the same mill. One is taken and the other is left. And they'll say, see, that's the rapture. One is taken and the other one is left. Fortunately, Luke includes what Matthew did not, which explains Jesus' rather odd reference to corpses and vultures. Because in verse 37, his disciples listening to him and hearing that one is taken and the other is left, they ask, The very intelligent question, where? What a good question. I'm so glad they asked that. Okay, so one is taken. Where are they taken? Where, Lord? And he said to them, wherever the body is, there will the vultures be gathered. In other words, it's a direct reference to this sacrifice that God is going to make for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field And it's going to occur consistently after Jesus returns. And the sign of the Son of Man is shown in the heavens. 
He comes back with his rod of iron to destroy the nations, and there's going to be such a conflagration, such a battle, that then the birds of the air, the vultures, the carrion birds are called in to do the cleanup. Not only is there seven months of Israel cleaning up Jerusalem, but also the birds and the beasts are going to come and help the cleanup effort. So notice again that there is a consistent timeline being laid out. It's consistent in Ezekiel. It's consistent with Jesus in both Matthew and Luke that after he comes and after there is this call to the battle of Armageddon, exactly the way we've read it in the book of Revelation, that there are going to be unclean spirits like frogs that are going to go out and call the armies to Jerusalem, specifically to the Armageddon, then there is going to be such a battle, so much bloodshed, that the blood rises to the bridles of the horses, and then there's the cleanup effort that is being done by the carrion birds. Got all that? That's all introduction. You hanging with me so far? All I'm showing you is that the Bible speaks of this feast for birds many, many times. And always it's captains and kings and princes and rulers and the high and mighty who end up being bird food. Now turn to the book of Revelation. We're going to start reading chapter 19, verse 11, which is the stuff we covered last week so that we can build up speed to get to verse 17. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Very consistent, the description of the warfare that attends Jesus' return. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the mid-heaven, Come, assemble yourself to the great supper of God. Okay, so there's an angelic invitation to the carrion birds to come to the supper of God, the sacrifice that God has made perfectly in keeping with what Isaiah has already told us is going to happen. And we concluded that it hasn't happened yet because part and parcel of that supper for the birds is the reestablishment of Israel back in their own land, all 12 tribes, God pouring out his spirit, just like Zechariah said, so that they then turn to God in worship, in faith. That has not happened yet. So this supper for the birds, this carrion bird thing, is a very vital, important sign that is attendant to the return of Christ to establish his kingdom. It is part of the warfare, the part of the smashing of the nations, and then part of the cleanup that happens in Jerusalem. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. I just want to clarify real quickly. You know that there are three heavens spoken of in the Bible. There is the heavens where the birds fly, what we know as our atmosphere. And then there is the heavens where the stars and the sun and the planets are. We know that as the galaxies or the universe. And then there is the heaven 
where God himself resides. When we read Peter or the book of Revelation or any other prophet talk about the making of a new heaven and a new earth, sometimes people read that and say, well, then God is going to remake the place where he sits. No, no, no. He doesn't need to remake the place where he sits. It's fine. It's holy. It's perfect. But he's going to create a new atmosphere around planet Earth, a new heavens and a new earth. That heaven where the birds fly is the midheaven. And so the angel cries to all the birds that fly in the midheaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves and small and great. Does that language sound familiar? You've already heard it this morning. It's right from Ezekiel. Ezekiel cast it out into the future to the time of Israel's restoration. John on the Isle of Patmos confirms that it hasn't happened yet, that it is still forthcoming and that as Christ establishes his kingdom, he's going to judge his enemies. And you're going to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders. By the way, this is going to become important in the next couple of weeks. The word that is translated commanders there is kiliarch. It means one who rules over a thousand soldiers. Kiliad's going to come up a lot. Kilioi. It's going to come up a lot in chapter 20 where we start reading thousands. We're going to talk about a thousand means a thousand probably next week. There's your coming attraction. Now you know what to expect next week. And we're going to look at the way the Bible, and specifically John, uses the number 1,000, how people have misinterpreted it, and how the plural 1,000 is used in Revelation 20. But what you need to hold on to is Kiliarch means a ruler over 1,000, a set of 1,000 of something. Hold on to that. Come, all you birds of prey, assemble for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse. That's why we began reading at verse 11. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. That is clearly Christ. He is the only one who can be referred to as the faithful and true and righteous one. And when he is returning to planet earth, the kings of the earth driven by the beast assemble their armies in order to make war against Christ. One of the basic tenets of the Bible, one of the just bedrock concepts that you have to hold on to in order to understand our need for salvation, one of those just fundamental ideas that will help you to understand the whole rest of Christianity is that men are depraved. Okay, so... The sun and the moon and the stars have gone dark. And suddenly there is the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens like lightning from the east to the west. And he's returning on a white horse, his armies behind him, robed in their clean, pure linen. And the people of the earth, who you would think would run out, see that, look at each other and say, you know, we should probably worship whoever this is. 
even if we're not Christian at this moment, clearly he has more authority than we do. Clearly he has more power than we do. We should probably get on our face. People don't because people are depraved. And instead they assemble their armies for the purpose of fighting against him like they're going to win. He's the one who 2,000 years ago was put to death and rose again from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father. You can't kill him. Even as we have been studying the book of John in men's group, one of the things that we have seen consistently that John writes is that even though the Jewish leaders hated him and wanted to kill him and wanted to be done with him, they couldn't lay their hands on him until he was ready to lay down his life. The phrase that keeps coming up is, it's not my time yet. At one point, they were so upset with him that the whole mob took him to the edge of a cliff to throw him off. And then you read, and he walked through the midst of them. Okay, if you've got an angry mob (laughs) that are all out to kill you, do you have the ability to just turn around and walk through the middle of them? No, that's the kind of power, the kind of authority he had, which is why he could say things like, no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay my life down, and I have the power to take it up again. And he didn't lay his life down until it was his specific time. So no matter how much people were offended by him, how much they hated him, or how much they wanted him dead, nobody could do anything to him until he allowed them to. He even said it to Pilate. You have no power against me. Any power you have is given you from on high. And yet, human beings and their armies are going to go out and fight with that one? That's insane. Because human depravity and human sin is insane. You're just not in your right mind. Now, by the way, Paul is going to tell us that these people are not in their right mind. And he's going to tell us why they are not in their right mind. And this is a tough one for people to swallow. Because Paul tells us that the reason they follow the Antichrist so that they are condemned is because God himself subjected them to that. That's a very, very sovereign God. That is not a God who you can say, everybody gets a free choice. That's not the God where you get to say, just make up your mind. It's up to you. Use your will. Choose Jesus. Here, let's read it. Go to 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to start reading at chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. I'm sure those of you with iPads are already there. Wait while the rest of us catch up. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to start reading right at verse 1. This is Paul writing about the man of lawlessness. In Revelation, we just read about the beast discussing the exact same person, this world leader who is going to inspire the kings of the earth and their armies to come fight for him. How does he inspire that kind of loyalty? Well, Paul is going to tell us. Chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Okay, so what's the subject matter? The coming of Jesus. So now I'm going to talk to you, and we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. I think we've talked enough about day of the Lord that you know what that means. These folks in Thessalonica were going through so much turmoil, so much difficulty, that they began believing perhaps they were in this time of God's judgment, the time of God's wrath. Paul is arguing that hasn't happened yet. And then he's going to lay out his evidence for why it hasn't happened yet. 
Verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasia comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? So clearly when Paul was in Thessalonica, he taught eschatology. And he told them what to expect in the days to come. And the chief thing to watch for was this man of lawlessness who was going to make himself into an idol, an object of worship. And he was going to take a seat in the temple in Jerusalem proving to himself that he had replaced Yahweh. In other words, he is in direct opposition to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and his son Christ. Don't you remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what holds him back, what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Can I get an amen? Amen. Lawlessness is already active in the world. Only he who now restrains or holds him back will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Okay, so that perfectly fits with the timeline of the book of Revelation. That perfectly fits with the timeline of the prophets. That perfectly fits with the way that we have been understanding Revelation so far, which is the man of lawlessness, this beast, is on the planet ruling when Jesus comes back and then destroys him, destroys his armies, sets up his kingdom. All of the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus himself, Paul writing, John writing and Revelation all say the same thing. The Bible only tells one story. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders. Remember Jesus a moment ago said that there were going to be false prophets who would do signs so convincing that they might even cause the very elect to stumble over it, if that were possible. Well, here's Paul saying the same thing, that this one is going to come whose activity is after the accord, after the power of Satan, and he's going to do wonders, and he's going to do signs, and he's going to do powers. In other words, if you don't know your Bible, and if you're just simply convinced, if you're swayed, if you are taken by miracles or miracle services, if all you want is a good miracle and then you'll go follow whatever that guy says, regardless of whether or not it's in the Bible, then you're ready to fall. Pray to this man of lawlessness who is going to come on the planet and do such great miracles that if it were not for the protective power of God's electing grace, you'd fall for it too. So he is going to come after the power of Satan and do miracles. And with, verse 10, and with all the deception of wickedness, for who? For those who perish. Okay, who are those who perish? Because now we have two different groups. We have the elect ones, and we have the perishing ones. And who made the difference between the elect ones and the perishing ones? God, God himself. In a moment, Paul's going to say that. So he's going to come with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Because they did not receive... That doesn't mean they didn't make a choice. It means they were not given the necessary faith to endure because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. That's why they perish. 
because they did not receive from God the love of the truth. And for this reason, okay, what's the reason? Be very careful here. What is the reason? They're not going to be saved. They are going to perish. They are going to follow after this man of lawlessness whose activity is after Satan. They're going to see the power, the signs, all the false wonders. They're going to fall for it, and they're going to follow him. And in order to accomplish that, verse 11 says, and for this reason, God will send upon them a strong delusion, says the King James. The NASB says, will send upon them a deluding influence. Why? So that they will believe what is not true in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So, Christ comes back. Sign in the heavens. Sun, moon, and stars are darkened. East to the west. Sign of Christ returning. And the people of the earth gather in armies, follow the beast and the kings of the earth to go do battle against him. And any rational person would say, that's stupid. That's insane. Why would you do that? That's Christ. You can't fight him. Stop it. Who do you think you are? That's what any logical, rational person would say. But these people are in darkness They are insane. They are following after the beast. Why? Because God himself not only didn't give them the Holy Spirit and give them the love of the truth so that they would be saved, but he sent them actively a deluding spirit for the purpose of causing them to follow after the beast so that they would be condemned. That's a really, really sovereign God. And that's what the Bible says. Did I say anything the Bible doesn't say? No. And so you've got to realize, you've got to deal with, you've got to stand toe-to-toe with the God who presents himself like that. The God who turns people over to the worship of the beast so that they will be condemned. That's why there are armies waiting to fight Christ when he comes back. By the way, just because we happen to be here in 2 Thessalonians, I'm going to keep reading because now Paul says something truly, genuinely remarkable. After telling us that God has given a certain group of people this deluding influence so that they will believe the lie, so that they will be condemned, verse 13 says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, separate group the group that is loved by God. And how did God demonstrate his love for them? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification, by the Spirit, and faith in the truth. So you get saved, you are sanctified from your sins by the Spirit of God, and you have faith in the truth And this other group did not receive the love of the truth. Instead, they were given a deluding spirit so that they will not be saved. They will be judged. But you, brethren, we ought to always thank God for you because God in his love for you chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification, through faith in the truth. And it was for this cause that he called you through our gospel, so that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I couldn't just leave you hanging with the deluding spirit thing. Paul is very clear about saying there is election by God's grace that leads to salvation. And there is delusion that comes from God for the purpose of condemnation and destruction and damnation. And it is all, every bit of it, Across the board, God's doing. And nobody gets to take credit for either group. 
Which is why in the book of Romans, long as we're talking about this, why in the book of Romans, as Paul is laying out this theology of God's absolute sovereignty and salvation, that is why Paul says, you will say to me then, how can God find fault? How can God judge anybody, seeing as how everybody only did what he said they were going to do? Well, then that doesn't seem fair. I mean, if everybody is only doing what God determined they were going to do, how can God turn around and judge people for doing the very thing that God said they were going to do? And Paul knows that argument is coming. And so he answers it in advance and says, you're going to say to me, how can God find fault if we all just did what God determined we were going to do? And his answer is, do you remember? Who are you? that replies against God. Can't the potter from the same lump of clay make one vessel to honor and one to dishonor? That's when he goes on and says, what if God, perfectly willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, what if he endured with great long suffering those vessels of wrath that were fitted for destruction so that he could show his grace and glory on the vessels that he made for honor? Paul was always very clear about the fact that human salvation or human condemnation is all God's doing. This is why I so often finish my sermons by saying, run to Christ. Mm-hmm. Do you remember one time Barney Johnson stood right here? Actually, Barney Johnson stood here a lot of times. But one time he stood here and said, if you can believe in Christ, you need to believe in Christ. If you can do it, oh, you need to do it. But there are people who will see no need in that. There are people who will say, I don't need Christ. That's a crutch. That whole religion thing, that whole Christianity thing, that's something you need because you're weak. But I'm smart. I'm a grown-up. I decide for myself what I'm going to do. Okay, well, God's going to turn you over to a strong delusion, and you're going to believe the lie, and you're going to be condemned. And the Bible says so. Run to Christ. And I thank God, brethren. We should always give thanks to God for you, beloved of the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning for salvation. Okay, that was just extra parenthetical stuff in the middle of our Revelation study here. I just wanted to show you that God remains sovereign through all of this, but that also explains why in Revelation 19, when Christ returns, nevertheless, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. The reason they do that is because God himself has allowed them to be deluded by the false wonders and miracles of the lawless one. But what's the end result? Well, there's a big battle, and Christ fights, and uh, oftentimes it looks like he's going to lose, and uh, oh, the battle goes back and forth. There's none of that. Instead, Christ, the all-powerful one, just mops up the floor with them. That's verse 20. And the beast was seized. Apparently, he had no choice in the matter. And with him, the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. And those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest, the armies that were with them, were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now we know where the sacrifice of God to the carrion birds and beasts takes place. It takes place after Christ returns, destroys the armies that have come against him, Naturally, since we know in Zechariah that when he returns, his feet touch the Mount of Olives, that places him right outside Jerusalem. There is a cataclysmic battle 
Of course, there would be plenty of bones to clean up, which is why Ezekiel can tell us it's going to take seven months just to clean up the bones, plus animals, plus birds, just to clean up the debris from the battle when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom. All I'm trying to show you, if you get nothing else out of this morning, all I'm trying to show you is that the Bible consistently tells the same story, and the Bible consistently carries the same timeline. There's nobody who says anything other than what we've been reading this morning. The timeline is Christ comes back, he destroys those armies in what we know as Armageddon. That all takes place right there by Jerusalem. And there is a massive cleanup effort that includes God making a feast, God making a sacrifice for the birds of the air. Turn to Isaiah 11 and we'll call it a morning. I mean, it already is a morning. We're just going to call it that. We're going to read Isaiah 11. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Father of of King David. So there is a shoot coming from the lineage of David, which is why it's so important again throughout the Gospels that you see Christ referred to as the son of David. Because he's David's greater son who's going to sit on David's throne to rule over all the nations. It's the same story. The collective 12 tribes of Israel are going to be regathered And David's greater son is going to sit on the throne from Jerusalem, ruling over them and ruling over the nations. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the reverence, the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. It's exactly what we've been reading in Revelation 19, that he's coming back to judge in righteousness. Isaiah predicted that's what he was going to do. Book of Revelation says that's what he comes to do with Righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Sound familiar? Same language. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt around his waist. And then, since that is about the return of Christ and judging the nations in righteousness with his rod of iron, what's the next thing that happens according to Isaiah? The language suddenly gets all millennial on us. All millennial. I wanted to say that as clearly as I could. It becomes very millennial kingdom on us. With the breath of his lips, he's going to slay the wicked. And righteousness is going to be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt around his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lay down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze together and their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand into a viper's den. And they will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. How much water covers the sea? The entirety of the sea is covered by water. The righteousness of God is going to cover the earth in the exact same way. And nothing is going to hurt or destroy in all of God's holy mountain. Verse 10, and then it will come about in that day that the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles, will resort to the root of Jesse. The nations, the Gentiles, will resort to Christ 
who will stand as a sign, as a signal for all the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. And then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, and Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And then the jealousy of Ephraim, the northern kingdom, will depart. And those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. And they will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west, and together they will plunder the sons of the east, and they will possess Edom and Moab, and the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind. And he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who are left. Just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so I got to hurry. Got to hurry. Did God bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt? Is that a historic reality? Yes. That's a fact. We even have archaeological proof that God actually did that. It says it in our text. It says it in other texts. We know that God actually went and got Israel and brought them out of Egypt. Here, based on that reality, Isaiah says, and he's going to do it a second time. The same way that he brought them out of Egypt, he's going to go to the four corners of the earth, all the places where he drove them, and he's going to bring them back to their land, and he's going to regather that remnant of his people who are going to be left. Verse 1 of chapter 12, and then Israel will say to me, and you will say to me on that day, I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, for although thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away. And thou dost comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise Yahweh in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known Throughout the earth, cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Amen. Amen. Okay, so where do we begin today? We began with God making a sacrifice for the birds. And then we saw it in Ezekiel, we saw Jesus mention it, Matthew mentions it, Luke mentions it. And then consistently it's carried over to the book of Revelation. And in every one of those instances, it runs chronologically after the return of Christ, after the destruction of the armies of the earth, who God has given a deluding influence so that they're going to believe the lie and be condemned. Christ is going to come back and pour out that judgment. And then he's going to gather Israel and establish his kingdom. And when that kingdom is established the natural order is going to change. Where even if a little child were to put his hand down the pit of vipers, nothing will hurt or harm in all my holy mountain. Lions are going to eat straw like cattle. That hasn't happened yet. There's a clue that this part of Isaiah hasn't happened yet. And then ultimately, just like Zechariah says, just like Ezekiel says, he's going to gather Israel back to their land, and because they receive the spirit of God and the spirit of supplication, they're going to weep over Christ, and they're going to have faith in God, and they're going to sing to him, and they're going to praise him, and because of that singing and praising and worship of God being in Jerusalem, it's going to spread out to the nations so that the nations hear about the great works of God because 
it is going to emanate from Jerusalem out to the nations, exactly like all the prophets have said. Do you see how consistent the Bible is? It's remarkable. So I say again, as I have said over and over again, run to Christ. You do not want to be here and be an enemy of Christ because he's going to win and he's going to win big. And you do not want to fall under his judgment or under the wrath of God. And the only way to make sure that you are secure through all eternity is run to Christ. And if you can run to Christ, then by golly, run to Christ. I threw a by golly in there just for emphasis. (laughs) Run to Christ. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.